Welcome to Committing Faith in Public. This is the podcast for people who want to be inspired by individuals and communities of faith doing good work in public. Our guests tell stories of their work of weaving a more just, kind, and diversity-inclusive society. Our starting place for stories is Oklahoma because that is where we live and because many people, both in Oklahoma and beyond, are surprised when they learn that interreligious-friendly, pro-democracy, diversity-welcoming, public-good-oriented religion even exists in Oklahoma. So through this podcast, we're spreading good news and encouraging you in your faith and public life work. I'm Gary Peluso Verden, President Emeritus at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and working on the Religion and Public Life Initiative for the seminary. I'm on today with the Reverend Dr. Vic Hunter. Vic and I first met, I think, in what, about uh, 1993, when I first came to be the Doctor of Ministry Director at Phillips, uh, and Vic had, was about a year into the program at that point, and uh, pastoring a church in, in Evergreen, Colorado. Vic was one of those students that he just wanted to basically figure out how to get out of his way. Uh, he knew what he wanted to do. Um, he came to us as already a published author. So as often is the case with Doctor of Ministry students who um, haven't written uh, more than 20 or 25 pages in any stretch in their life, that was not the case with Vic. Uh, since that time, Vic has, has um, failed at retirement like twice now or thereabouts? Twice, yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but currently is, is still writing. Vic, what's, your, what's the latest book that you wrote? Uh, the latest, the latest book that I've done with my brother, where we have uh, always approached things from science and religion, theology uh, perspective, is called uh, "Stories of Desire and Narratives of Faith: From Neanderthal to the Postmodern Age." It's a, uh, it's pretty broad book. Yeah, it's, it sounds <laughs> fast. How do we know things? Right. It's on epistemology. Yeah. Cool. That's a big subject these days, right? How do you know things and, and uh, what's truth and all those other uh, really good topics. Is the book doing okay? It's done all right. I still have to draw my social security. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Well, the reason, reason Vic's on today is because Vic had included me uh, in email uh, to a number of his friends and colleagues raising questions about uh, is it is it time to revisit and uh, and maybe to think in terms of how it might apply today uh, about the Barman Declaration? Unless our um, listeners are either um, theologically trained in another generation or have a long memory uh, or kind of specialists, they might not know what the Barman Declaration is. So why don't you start by, by talking some, what is, what was the Barman Declaration, Vic? 
Okay, that's that's a good place to start. And uh, obviously, briefly in an interview, uh, we need to hit the highlights. It, it, I'm concerned uh, in terms of revisiting it with its context, which began in the 1920s in Germany with the coming to power of National Socialism right. in Germany, and uh, the direction that went under the leadership of what became Der Führer, uh, principle with Adolf Hitler and that move toward fascism and nationalism and racism and misinformation and uh, got swept up in, uh, I think, what was called in, in uh, Germany uh, the Glitzschatung, which meaning the, the effort to bring economic and political and religious and social uh, issues all under the control of one major authority being uh, the Nazi party. And, and so this obviously began to affect the church. Right. And they wanted to keep, they didn't, the Nazis didn't want to close down the church. They just wanted the church to be a positive Christianity, which kind of meant to uh, uh, go along and let us co-opt you uh-huh. and, uh, and in response to that, there were people like Karl Barth, who was both Swiss and German, right. a Swiss theologian taught in Germany, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who may be the most published, or not the most published, Barth, of course, is that, but the famous uh, leader in the, the, the Confessing Church, mm-hmm. uh, Martin Niemöller, pastors, some lay people, some people in government, began to form these small groups of, uh, I will call, resistance. Right. And that came to a head in 1934 when uh, they came together in Barmen in Germany and uh, put together what became known as the Barman Declaration, and it is a theological declaration. Mm-hmm. It is in three parts that the first two parts analyze the current political, national, social, racial, blood and soil situation of Germany mm-hmm. and the rise of the Nazi Party, mm-hmm. and the concern with the attempt at what became uh, what was called the uh, uh, the uh, Kirchen, the Kirchenkampf, the uh, church struggle, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. who is going to speak for the church? Mm-hmm. And this is a theological document uh, that was written, and Karl Barth wrote the the third part, the mm-hmm. first two parts mm-hmm. being on analysis of the situation, mm-hmm. the current situation, mm-hmm. and that of course is very important to my work. Uh, through 50 years in ministry, of raising always two questions, theological, what and so what. Right. And so what is, so what do we do with this? Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. is this calling us to? Mm-hmm. And that without the what, we become unhinged, and without so what, we become irrelevant and, si- and, and silenced and so on. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, uh, I've been influenced all my ministry by this work in, in the Barman Declaration. And the main thing it did in the third part was to have six affirmations of, about, uh, simply put, about what's the authority in the church. Right. 
but it not only had six affirmations, it had six rejections. Mm-hmm. It says we affirm on the one hand, mm-hmm. and because of that affirmation, we are called to reject this in the current situation. Right, which which was coming out of the which was coming out of the nascent Nazi government. That's right, and it was, and they began to be thought of as the Nazification of the church. Right. So that was the big concern. It cost pastors their churches. It cost professors their professorship uh-huh. and the, where they could teach. So they uh, they started their underground seminary right. to try to train pastors. Probably never more than 20% of Lutheran pastors became involved in the confessing church. Hmm. And they didn't agree on much of anything. Right, <laughs> and right. it was really a diverse group, but they did agree on saying, these we affirm theologically, mm-hmm. which means we reject certain things about what is happening through the government in the life of the church, mm-hmm. and that it is, it is, I'll put it simply, antichrist. Right, right. In the claims that are made. So that's sort of the background that led finally to Bart was deported back to Switzerland when it talked about. Bart said, what did it cost me? It cost me six really good cigars as I wrote the six <laughs> affirmations of rejection. Uh-huh. A big one for each one. And, but it also cost him the future in, in Germany during that right. period. Right. And, uh, and eventually uh, Niemöller was imprisoned. Right. Many others were – Niemöller, I think, was imprisoned seven years. Uh, Bonhoeffer finally ended up being executed. Uh, in Flossenburg, I think it was, uh, in uh, in April of uh, 1945, at right. the end, of the, end right. of the period. One other interesting thing, Gary, and this comes to then what got me so exercised. Right, right. Uh, the church struggle was then became between what were known as the German Christians and the confessing church. Right, right. And it raised questions for me. In not just now, but in 50 years in the ministry, Uh am I a pastor of a group of Americans who happen to be Christian? Uh Uh Or am I a pastor of a group of Christians that happen to be American? That's that's a huge difference. It It came to a head for me, which I'll talk about in a minute. In 1945, now remember, Barman is 34. Right. So 11 years prior... And then the start of the war, you know, and then the end of the war, uh, the thousand-year reign of the right, right, uh, right came to an end. Anyway, what happened was that those that were among the German Christians and maintained the life of the church, but in that context of being German Christians, wrote a confession in 1945. Hmm. The Confessing Church wrote a confession in 1934. Hmm. So my question, as things have happened that I'll talk about in a little bit here, is when do we confess? Hmm. And because the confess, the confession of the German Christians in 1945 was a confession of guilt. Of guilt. Hmm. We did, we failed. Hmm. Hmm. We did not see the anti-Semitism. We did not want to. We avoided. We buried. We what? So it was. It was a confession of guilt in 
1934, it was a confession, Jesus Christ is Lord. Right, right. So it, and it was a confession that involved commitment, community, and actual the the living of the confessed faith. Yeah, let me stop you for a second because I want to. So, have you studied the? I mean, I, I know the thirty four document. I don't really know the forty five confession. Have you studied that one? Yes, and it is a confession of guilt. And and was it? And it's available. Just uh, right. And, you know, and what you know about it was it a sincere or was it a? We're trying to denazify at the end of the war and not be. Uh, poss possibly prosecuted with with the losers. As you know, I'm highly influenced by Rhino Niebuhr, right? Who died while I was at Union, and our next door neighbor was his nurse while I was at Union. Oh yeah, I had forgotten and, that. Right. And so she, I had a good source uh, to yeah. to Niebuhr. But at any rate, and and why I say that is. Niebuhr always talked about the ambiguity of reality, mm -hmm. that it is often neither this or that, right. or that, right. uh, that and, and there is no pure right. response. That's where I begin to question the whole theology of purity right. uh, at, from any perspective. Right. Right. And we would say in our context from the liberals and the conservatives and from the right and the left. And, you know, it's, it's not that anyone is. And I don't think the confession was pure, hmm. but I do think it was authentic. Hmm. And I think they, it was a true confession of guilt. Hmm. Hmm. OK, now, but it is it was it, I think it was probably with mixed motives and mixed hopes. Sure. Sure. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Fair enough. Good. Which is a good question, Gary. Now, what? Why are Why are we talking today? Right. Because I got all. It came to a head. I have been concerned. Yeah. For the past three and a half years yep. about the actions of this president. Yep. Right. And I'm going to put some specifics to that. But it came to a head for me on the evening of June 1st when he came out of the White House mm -hmm. and uh, he he had with him head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, right. the Secretary of State, the uh, Attorney General, mm -hmm. uh, and then other minions that had either come on recently because the life of this presidency has been bringing people in and getting rid of them very soon. Right. There's, 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 there's no continuity right. uh, because it is because it has become about Trumpism, mm -hmm. or Trumpianism, mm -hmm. and basically Trumpian nationalism. That has smelled badly mm -hmm. to, to to me and many others. Mm -hmm. uh, and I am not concerned with speaking as a Democrat or Republican, but as a Christian. Right. And I'm concerned about the silence of the church. And is this a slide toward fascism? The question that is being raised. Sure. And what is the church saying? And do we see any relevance or anything to learn as we look back on a history where this, where the church was co-opted? Mm -hmm. And so it leads both to things that are happening politically, but the co-opting, particularly of the Christian right, as if they are the voice of the church. 
and that they do think that uh, they promote this sense of the chosen one. Right, right. And that that all seems very dangerous and very slippery, and it raised the question of a confession in 1934 right. compared to a confession in 1945. Right, which at some point has to come. <laughs> which is going to come. Right. And, 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 and we're in a very critical time right now. Uh, my brother's pushing me to try to do a op-ed piece for the New York Times before the election, but I—that's where do we go from here? Question, right, right. But but at any rate, that is uh, the concern. And here, so here are the things that on that evening, with that entourage, peaceful protesters were gassed, shot with rubber bullets, uh, broken up while Trump strode to the front of St. John's Church, one of our famous symbols, right, right. church buildings uh, in our nation. And there, what did what I called a highly symbolic act right. uh, of usurping the symbols of our faith, right. our, our, our faith, our sacred architecture, and our sacred book. Right. And just as clear as it, uh, as it could be, as it was held up, for his own glorification, power mongering, racial racist blindness, uh, political purposes, uh, including this sense that he's the chosen one. Right, and, and, and as the law and order president, right? I mean, he said this is the, the right law and, and law and order, with never a reference to law and justice. Right, and those are two different things. Right, right. Law and order and law and justice. And then the question became, so who speaks for the church? Because as I listen to the media, and, I, and I'm really unhappy with this screaming of fake news, I believe in the freedom of speech and the freedom of press fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm really concerned with this fake news so that what we have been given uh, is a growing false narrative right. on which our nation is seen, promoted, and who speaks for the church, which was the question between the German Christians and the confessing church. Who speaks for the church? And the confessing church actually then moved the German experience toward ecumenism and the worldwide church and got a tremendous amount of support from Bishop Bell in England right. and many others right. and Bonhoeffer's work at Union and right. so forth. So this kind of touches a lot of my roots, both in England and at the seminary. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I guess is this. Is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. So, so with you, I mean, all my alarm bells have been ringing uh, just as loudly as, as as they possibly can. This uh, dominionist or Christian nationalist uh, approach uh, that is that runs sort of with affinities uh, for uh, the kind of uh, monarchical authoritarianism. Uh, this rejection of of the kind of democracy and we need to be in order to be, you know, the, the extremely diverse people that we we are. Liberty uh, and justice for, for all. all. For all, right. <laughs> and and I'm reading more and more of people who say uh, quite rightly that um, uh, we've emphasized freedom, but 
but have uh, de-emphasized equality. And equality has always been our Achilles heel as Americans and as Christians. Um, I've got two books that one I just finished, one I'm, I'm finishing, White Too Long by Robert Jones uh, on, on the um, uh, embedding of white supremacy into Christianity as it's been practiced in this country. Uh, and by white people in this country. And then Eddie Gloud's uh, book on, on democracy in black, where he says, you know, the American idea, some people would say uh, the American idea has been corrupted by our inequality uh, in the country. And, and others, including himself, would say, no, inequality was baked into the American idea. This is, in fact, an expression of where we've been. Um, so that's all sort of, for me, context for this moment in time where, yes, uh, um, the question of who is speaking for the church or the churches, um, the, the question of that wasn't in Germany at the time, I think, but that we have of, do we really have one Christianity? Can we even talk that way anymore? Or we really have to talk about multiple Christianities based on not just what we say, but are actually what we're doing to each other. You know, in Germany, there was the there was the uh, Lutheran Church. There was the Reformed Church. There were probably some small groups of, uh, you know, like the like the Mennonites and the like, right? Um, uh, the um, uh, and uh, kind of peaceful and the Catholic Church and the Catholic God. Church, of course, especially in Bavaria and in, in Hitler's home area. Here we've got two hundred some different two hundred two hundred fifty denominations plus other religions um, with. Unfortunately, with the um, Christian right uh, kind of co-opting what Christianity means for a lot of public life, that has been part of our part of us now for forty years. Uh, I mean, good. All of my ministry has yeah. been dominated. You know, the public life has been dominated by the Christian right, and this seems, though, this is a more extreme version. Uh, of it than we saw, you know, in the, in the, even in the moral majority and the Christian coalition and all, this is a more extreme version of we've got to take over the country with this kind of Christianity and has a president who seems to be keep, keep inviting them in, uh, but seems like you're saying, um, completely co-opting Christianity for his purposes rather than Christianity really in any meaningful way reframing for him what the kind of justice agenda the country ought to be. Okay, uh, very helpful, Gary. And I, I mean, I think we're very much looking at this um, in, in kind of the light of our ministries being during this period of American history that, right. that we've come to age in and been yep. part of the pastor and the seminary right. and scholarship and those kind of things. Right. So, but there is a sense in which church history from the beginning, including the New Testament, can be told by the conflicts right the theological conflicts and that it really makes a difference what becomes the voice sure or the, the voices the voice says right right the voice which says. I would affirm very much uh, and what has really become concerning is the in terms of comparisons is the combining of racism or racialism, racism, uh, 
with authority mm-hmm. um, and power and whiteness. Uh, yeah, white supremacy uh, uh, with uh, Christian <laughs> experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so who is going to speak? And yes, so I think there have always been, in one sense, as far as I can read the New Testament. And as far as I can read, even in the early fathers and mothers, a kind of debate about what is the voice. Right. Uh, and my concern has been the the loudness of the voice on the side of from the side of the Christian right and the political structures that it supports and so forth, mm-hmm. trying to define things with statements like Trump will put us mm-hmm. Christians mm-hmm. at the top of the food chain mm-hmm. of authority mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. privilege and mm-hmm. not at the bottom. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me a direct challenge mm-hmm. to the teachings of Jesus about love rather than power, mm-hmm. about inclusion and the marginalized mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. uh, in, in the beloved community. And so it seems like there is a direct kind of terrible confrontation that we're not hearing the voice of the confession of the way of Jesus. Right, in right. In terms of peace, equality, justice, the kingdom of God, all those kinds of um of, of views. And, and I really am concerned by that. And Bonhoeffer, I think, again, is our teacher, uh, one of our teachers in this, that, that silence is not, silence is evil. Yeah. In the face of uh, suffering. Right. In the face of injustice, uh, in the face of hatred, in the face of a false narrative about life itself. And, and I think that's what we're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, and so and so let if I could just move ahead and I please. Yes. I th- yes. That's good. Because it because. So what does that mean? I remember Carlisle Marty a long time ago saying most pastors don't have the courage to say boo to a church mouse, let alone damn to a culture that is antichrist. And that has really hmm. haunted me. <laughs> and, and and of course. Our pay depend, you know, right. my salary depends on this, and and so on and so, so forth, and, and so I am concerned that silence in the face of tactical lying mm-hmm. for nationalist purposes is wrong, mm-hmm. and that do we confess now, hmm. or do we confess later? Mm-hmm. Will it be a confession of guilt or a confession of faith? Mm-hmm. And those, so those are the questions sure. that uh, I'm trying to get at and raise uh, and, and work with. And you've um, put out a call, really, amongst your own network uh, for folks to respond uh, to these kinds of concerns. What has that produced thus far, and what are you hoping to do with that kind of call? That's where it it is produced more than I ever expected. Uh, I probably sent to 90 people. I've had 60-some responses, which I think is amazing. You know, in mm-hmm. sales, if you get a 2% response, right, you're right. pretty good. <laughs> but uh, 
would you like to hear a couple of responses? Yeah, a couple of uh, responses would be great. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and there are many. I share your night terror. This was in response yeah, to my right, first letter. Right. Clear fascist, fascist rhetoric must be called out and checked by a confessing church. It was good to hear from Episcopal and Catholic bishops and priests. My perception is that evangelical Christians, and I really hate to use that term this way, but it, but I know what uh, right, this person right. said, are set on establishing a theocracy and hence are opponents of real democracy and quite open to some form of fascist government. Mm -hmm. Trump, I think, understands that and is working hard to be their Cyrus the Great right. as they wait for the true Messiah. Right. Scary stuff since the following, as Yates would put it, is full of passionate intensity. Our passion for the way of love must be at its most intense. The good can't lack all conviction. He's still quoting right, Yates. Right. Or the rough beast will slouch toward Bethlehem and be born. Of course, I love this. Mm -hmm. uh, recently, my thoughts have been on the nature of natural rights. And, mm -hmm. then, and then that raises the question of natural law and Right. And, and, you know, where do we start doing theology? Right. Okay. Right. Um, which I think is good. But what he says is, toward natural rights, I think a fundamental flaw, in part created by the blinders, defenders of slavery, in the Declaration is the omission of the foundational right, the right upon which all other natural rights rest, the right to give and receive love. Hmm. Without love, noisy gong, clanging cymbal, lying president, militarized police, blood in the street. Liberty without love is license. Life without love is hollow. Happiness without love is pleasure. Mm -hmm. I'd like to pursue a conversation about the state of the state and the state of the church. Mm -hmm and then suggest perhaps small Zoom groups and so forth. Yeah. That, and I don't want to do more of that, but that, some of these responses literally blew me away, Gary, yeah. in terms of the concern that I see out there and that obviously many others. And then when I began to look, at the, look into this, one of the things that became clear to me is that others have. For example, right. Rich, Richard Rohr yep. and the group of right. contemplatives right. has has released a document called Barman Today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, two years ago in 2018, the theologians that we would know and have worked with, uh, from Sojourners to uh, you know, from Jim Wallace and Sojourners to Walter Brueggemann to mm -hmm. the Episcopal Bishop uh, to Curry to you know, and so uh, a, a wonderful group of people uh, put out a confession, very, very much structured, structured after Barber. Then I received stuff from other congregations that they are starting to say locally. Mm -hmm. That here's who we are, mm -hmm. and here's here's what we confess, mm -hmm. and, and and that they they would go out like what like the pamphlets we used to hand out uh, when I was ten in my church in Kansas, uh, what you need to do to be saved, mm 
but these are here for what mm-hmm. we do. This is who we are. Mm-hmm. And then in my own congregation here in Colorado, uh, Karen Christian Church, uh, sermons and statements that are being released in connection with other voices in mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. uh, trying to raise these questions. So a couple of things that I will throw out, and I know our time must be getting uh, close. Virtually. Right. I think it is a time, perhaps, and I, I have not figured this out, and I'm open, still open to advice and still communicating with my circle. But one thing I do know is that there are other documents and groups out there. But when I compare that to 1934 through 45, the Confessing Church was basically made up of what they call brotherhood councils, circles, mm-hmm. congregations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was local pastors and lay people that said, we do what we can do here with what we publish and what we teach and what we confess. And as a congregationalist all my life, mm-hmm. I kind of think that I'd like to see a, a loose fellowship of pastors, lay people, uh, believers, faiths uh, that could get on kind of a communication system of support mm-hmm. and sharing mm-hmm. in how it would, what it would mean, and to do this mostly as a grassroots movement up. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of what I'm looking at and, and trying to work with, including. I'd like to see seminaries, and the two that I have most connection with mm-hmm. are Union and Phillips. Right. Think about doing a course or an intercession surrounding these questions, inviting pastors that are already out there and students that are in the seminary mm-hmm. to think and look at these things together, mm-hmm. to do theological work. Because what I am after is... What I think is important is a theological response. Right. I don't. I'm not responding to this in terms of human rights. Doctrine. Right. Right. I'm talking about Christian confession. Right. What is the theology? Where is the church? Where are we going to be in this? So I would like to see that. I would like to teach a short course on preaching in this kind of context because I think it takes a unique way of preparation. Mm. and language Mm -hmm. to do this in our kind of context. We don't have a state church. Okay, so there's there's obviously one big difference. Uh, And when I say that, I'm I'm thinking in terms of the word preaching, just the way it is spelled, and make two words out of it that would guide preparation. And I don't know whether – I think we have got to attend to suffering. And I think we're doing everything we can to avoid thinking about suffering. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like to look at sermon preparation in a course on preaching as pre-aching. And how we let current suffering inform the compassionate gospel of love and grace. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. And that we have to begin to pay attention to the sources of suffering. And that's pretty hard for an old white guy to do. Mm. So we need help. 
Right. And we need to combine voices. And where where we go to get there, we're still talking about. For me, in response to what you're saying, besides I can say amen to a lot of it, I think that one of the biggest problems we have, and I'm just going to have to leave this one here because we really are out of time, is the distinctiveness of the Christian of Christian voices of people as faith voices that's that is that is distinguished from uh, the agendas of the political parties. Our voices are too indistinct uh, from. There's some really good research that shows that political affiliation has become a mega identity today that all other identities have aligned with and been absorbed in as part of that great sorting going on in the U.S. And I think to speak as a Christian, um, uh, for there's way too many people, pastors included, not just laity, who cannot distinguish when they're hearing their pastor um, uh, trying to speak as a Christian and not putting it into, you're talking as a Democrat, you're talking as a Republican. Uh, and that is, I think, where I'm concerned for pastors is, is really there because it's so difficult to speak that prophetic word in this time of such radical polarization that you say anything. I mean, the word compassion ought not to be a political word. <laughs> but it absolutely is a political word. Right. And I think everything we've talked about today, and I've been trying to say, Gary, is along this line that what one of the pro, one of the things Barman teaches us again, these are two countries that are fo that followed or are following two madmen off a cliff. Right. <laughs> and the, and after the Reformation and Germany and and all of the the theologians of note and 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 skill and gifts and the and Christians the thing that I've learned is that the German church was theologically ill prepared to speak as Christians right and I think we are too and that's why I really invite congregations circles groups many councils, whoever can come together. And I'd like to see some seminaries take some lead in that to bring together people that have been in the ministry for 50 years and those they're training for their MD and everywhere in between. So that's the only question I'm raising. Yeah. And I do not have an answer. Right, right. Which, but I'm trying to raise those questions about where we might go. It is certainly an essential question. So, Vic, thanks so much for being on with me. I really appreciate your time today. Well, thank you, Gary, and I appreciate your invitation. This has been Committing Faith in Public, a podcast from the Religion and Public Life Initiative at Phillips Theological Seminary in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Copyright PTS and Gary Peluso Verdend. The views and opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect an official position of Phillips Theological Seminary.